I believe with all of my heart there are times that we have to press through, be faithful to God based upon the Word of God, whether we feel Him or not. I believe it. But listen to me. Biblically, that ain't the way it's supposed to be all the time. Those are the rare times. That's how we are supposed to make it in the rare times. Biblically, there's this, this kind of general understanding that God is in me. He is with me. He is always with me. He's never going to leave me. He is here now. And I have a sense of his awareness. And he goes where I go. And he hears what I say. And he sees what I do. And he longs to communicate with me. When you learn to walk in that type of relationship, it will transform your life. It becomes unshakable. Have you ever wondered why the same people who were throwing down palm branches and praising Jesus would change so quickly and be screaming for his death only days later? How could this be? What changed? Today, Pastor Joplin Emerson tackles these hard questions in his Palm Sunday sermon titled, Unlocking Unshakable Faith. I was uh, reminded of a, a story related to Palm Sunday just a few weeks ago uh, with something my, my son said to me. I, Malachi, our youngest, um, was sick a couple Wednesdays ago over the St. Patrick's Day week. And our kids department was having some contests where whoever was the greenest or wore the most green was going to get some prizes. Malachi had planned and planned and planned for that day and was hopeful to win. And I think he was going to dress up like a leprechaun or something, paint his hair green. I'm not real sure. I just know that he had plans to, to try to win. He was serious about it. Unfortunately, he got sick that day and wasn't able to go to church. And I stayed home with him that night to take care of him. About 7.30 p.m., he said he was hungry and he hadn't eaten hardly anything all day from being sick. And so I said, hey, whatever you want to eat, son, um, we're going to go get it for you. And if you know Malachi, the answer is always Freddy's. So we hop in the car and uh, we're headed to get something to eat and it dawns on him that he missed church. And he says, oh man, tonight was the night I was going to dress up like this and I was going to win. And, and I, uh, I felt terrible for the little guy. But it reminded me of the story of a little boy that missed church on Palm Sunday because he was sick. And so woke up in the morning, the little fellow was sick and his mom chose to stay home, take care of him. Dad goes on to church for Palm Sunday. The dad comes home after church and he's got a big palm branch. They had handed them out that morning, you know, in honor of Palm Sunday and to help with the illustration. And the little boy said, Dad, why do you got a palm branch? And he said, well, son, these we took, the people took and threw down before Jesus when Jesus came in. And the little boy said, oh, man, you mean the only time Jesus is ever at church? And I missed it. <laughs> On this Palm Sunday... We stop and we think about what's called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the event that we just read. It's interesting it's called the triumphal entry because we know how the week would end. And when Jesus came in, he really came in on a colt, the Bible tells us. And I believe there's some reasons for that. In fact, I'm going to be dealing with those in our life groups live tonight. I think the primary reason is that it was well known in this era of time that often when a king was on his way to war, he would ride a horse, a war 
horse, a tall, strong, often white horse. But in times of peace, when the king was coming in, to symbolize it was not a time of war, it was a time of peace, a king would often ride on a colt. And Jesus coming in, I believe, is symbolizing that he was the king of peace. The people are being so um, free in their worship, so loud, so excited, that the Pharisees are upset about it. Everybody's shouting, they're being loud, they're, they're throwing down their own cloaks, not just palm branches, but they're throwing down their cloaks, it said, in front of him. The idea, maybe for us to wrap our mind around it, it'd be as if they were trying to roll out the red carpet so that he had something to ride into in town, but they didn't have those thingies back then. And so they're just taking their cloaks and putting it down. And then as he walks past them, they're picking them up and running around and putting them down. And the people are dropping the palm leaves and everybody's excited. Jesus is coming to town. They're praising him. And the Pharisees, they don't like it. They say, hey, tell all your disciples, all these folks, the multitude here, calm down a little bit. Jesus tells them, if they weren't doing what they're doing, the rocks would cry out. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of excitement. It's a time of happiness. It's a time of joy. What I want us to deal with this morning is an odd question of why. Five days later, the same group of people are going to be shouting, kill him, crucify him. Let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children and our children's children. How is it possible that one day they're all excited, one day they're worshipers of God, one day they're just shouting praises, the Pharisees can't get him to stop. Five days later, the whole crowd is turned, and now they are calling for Jesus' death. Here's the question I want to pose this morning. Why? What happened? What changed in five days? Did the crowd find out some horrific truth about awful things Jesus had done in the past that exposed who he really was. No. Had years passed where they just slowly changed their opinion of the guy. Nope. We're talking five days. So what changed? 20 years of serving the Lord, I have seen thousands Thousands of people who one day are praising Jesus, they're following God, and then eventually down the road, they're not. It's not always a five-day turnaround. For some folks it is. For some folks you show up on Sunday morning, praise God, put a hand in the sky, love the songs we sing, and then you'll go to work and act the same old way that you've always acted tomorrow. For some folks it's only a 24-hour turnaround. But why? That's the question I want to ask. Why? 
In 20 years of doing what I do, I will tell you that the majority, the majority of people who say they are Christians, who at one point were fairly faithful to God, the majority of them eventually turn, lay their devotion to God down. You don't see them in the church house anymore. You don't see them truly being faithful to the things of God anymore. The majority. Now, there's no way for me to know exactly what that number is, but I can tell you my honest opinion is somewhere between 70 to 80%. Those that actually make it, those that actually stay faithful for the long haul, it's about two or three out of 10, 20 to 30%. I ask the question again, why? What could be causing this? One thing that is evident is that for some reason or another, the people of our text, those of whom I speak, have a faith that is shakable. They have a faith that if the wrong things happen, if the certain circumstances arise, if this thing doesn't happen like they think it's going to happen, whatever it may be, they become shaken, and all of a sudden, they're not actually faithful anymore to the very God to whom they claimed to worship. And so I want to come at this morning's message with the concept of how do we not do that? How do I make sure I'm not part of this crowd of folks, the 70 to 80% that eventually turns away from God? How do I know that? How do you know sitting here this morning that won't be you six months from now? How do you know? We just hope. We just pray that I'm not part of that group. Is there any way to know? How do we get to a place that our faith is unshakable? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to look at it from the context of unlocking an unshakable faith. And I'm going to share three keys Three keys, every one of these keys are required to have an unshakable faith. That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. Number one, the first key to unlocking unshakable faith is having a faith that is Christ-centered, not self-centered. Now, when I say that statement, pretty much everybody's like, yeah, duh. But when you look at how we actually approach Christianity, it's very self-centered. Even in a church like this, which is honestly, it's truly, it's a fairly spiritual church with a fairly spiritual people. The majority of people under the sound of my voice, even now, you look at how to fit your Christianity into your schedule. We approach Christianity from the perspective of, I've got so much to do, my life is so busy, I've got this thing I want to accomplish in life, this thing I want to accomplish in life, this thing I want to accomplish in life, but I know that I need to be a Christian, so where can I slam that into my schedule? Where can I fit God in? And we even approach our faith from the very beginning often with a very self-centered point of view. The issue with that, brothers and sisters, is your faith will always be shakable if it's a self-centered faith. 
I want you to think about a couple of things that they were praising Jesus for. When we study the Bible as a whole, which is a very important way to study it, we see that in the end of Jesus's ministry, there were two primary reasons people were worshiping him. One of them is in our text. It said that they were praising him because of the miracles, the great wonders that he did. So that was one of the reasons people were following Jesus because of the great miracles that he did. The other reason when we study scripture as a whole, there was a big chunk of people who really thought Jesus was their version of the Messiah who was going to bring in a new government and he was going to annihilate all the enemies of the Jews and Jerusalem was going to become, Israel was going to become the powerhouse of the world. So they were looking for Jesus to basically come in on his white horse with war and destroy all their enemies. Those were the two primary reasons at this stage in Jesus' life, people were still following him. Now think about it for a moment. Both of those are pretty self-centered. The miracles, the things he does for us, and what we believe he can do for us politically. It was a self-centered faith. But you go five days fast forward, and there he is, beaten, naked, hardly unrecognizable, nailed to a cross, doesn't look like much of a conqueror anymore. And now all of a sudden, what they thought they could get from him, it was clear they were mistaken. That wasn't where it was going to lead. No need for him anymore. See, this is what self-centered faith does. When your faith is really about you and what you can get from it, here's one of the disasters with a self-centered faith is that what you think you need today might change what you think you need two weeks from now. We're constantly changing what we feel like we need. On Sunday, they're thinking we need what's best for us is to praise Jesus. But on Friday, they're thinking, well, what's best for us is keep our mouth shut. Well, if you're the God of whatever's best for you and you're constantly doing what you think is best for you, you've got a self-centered faith and it's always going to be shakable. Always. We must have a Christ-centered faith where we are living for him and only for him. Where we live to please him. We live so that our lives might be an example to a lost and dying world of him. But when your faith is self-centered, you will always be self-preserving. And brothers and sisters, God's called us to a battle that isn't self-preserving. True Christianity is not self-preserving. It's the opposite of that. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the original invitation, right? Now, when we say that, right, lay down your life and take up your cross, that sounds pretty heroic. Like, who wants to do that? Me. And in our culture, even the cross has become so symbolized that when we hear that term taking up your cross, we don't really connect what Jesus was saying. Because the cross for Jesus was brutal. It was horrific. It was painful. It required the complete laying down of his selfish, you know, all that is self for a greater purpose. It was hard. 
And so when Jesus says to you and I that we need to take up our cross, he's basically saying whatever the most brutal, hardest thing in your life to do is, I'm calling you to be willing to do that. Now who wants to do that? You know, that message is uh, years ago, the church began to feel like that message is so unappealing that they changed the message. They changed the message to, you know, come to Jesus and he's going to make all of your dreams come true. Learn how to say the right words and spin a little faith on it and you can be a billionaire. You want a great big home or five of them? Jesus is your answer. You want a life free of pain and sorrow? Come to the Lord. There's a problem with that. They're all lies. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. But those statements went unchecked. People heard it and said, yes, I want that. Who doesn't? And then they come And they worship on Sunday, and five days later when the crowd changes, they change with the crowd. Because you will never be unshakable so long as your faith is self-centered. You'll be self-preserving. There was a story of a small village in Spain years ago. And this village was a very poor village, and Spain got a new king. The village had never, as far as they knew in their thousand years of existence, had a king visit the village. It was too poor. But this new king wanted to be known for visiting the poor. And so one of the first things he does, he sets out to visit all the villages, the poor villages that had never had anybody care enough to come and show up. So this village is real excited. They say, hey, the king is coming to our village. The whole town got together. The question was, how do we honor the king? They said, well, we're poor. Somebody came up with this idea. We're all really good farmers. Almost all of us have our own vineyards. We all know how to make wine. How about if every family in this town makes its best cup of wine and you just bring one cup and we're going to pour it in this big vat. All of us will bring the best we have. We'll pour it in this big vat. We'll make a mix of the greatest wine that we have and then we'll give the king one cup of that. And they all said, this is a terrific way to honor the king. So they go home, they do their thing, and one by one, each family comes. They come to the top of the vat, and they pour in their cup. Finally, the day comes, the king is there, the crowd gathers together, and they tell the king what they've done. The king thinks this is quite an honorable thing. What an idea. What a way to honor the king. He puts his cup underneath the vat, pours out one cup, goes to drink it, and it's just water. You see, what had happened was, is everybody thought the same thing. If I just come and pour in a cup of water, nobody will ever know. It'll be mixed with all the other cups of good wine, and nobody will know that I held back my best. And the king was greatly dishonored by a multitude of people who chose to hold back what was best. You see, when you have a self-centered faith, You will hold back what's best. I look at all that is not accomplished because of the number of people who are pouring in water. Because of the number of people who think to themselves, well, someone else will do it. I don't have to. 
Someone else will give this morning. I don't have to give. Someone else will serve. I don't have to serve. Someone else will meet that need. I don't have to meet that need. Somebody else will speak up. I don't have to speak up. And, you know, in my Christian life, there have been a handful of times that um, I have found myself discouraged, is a good word for it, at the reality that we could be doing so much if everybody would just be honest and do their part. But generally speaking, everybody's not. It's like, I know we could fix this thing. We could meet this need if everybody would just do their part. But then everybody doesn't. And there's a part of me, probably like all of you, that at some point in time, I'm like, well, what's the point? If everybody else isn't going to do it, then why should I? If the need is this, and those of us that are actually going to help can only meet here, then why should we help at all? And I have to remind myself in those moments, it's not about finishing the goal, it's about doing my part. And whether or not I can accomplish the task or not, I want to be part of the few that cared enough to give my best instead of excusing myself to give nothing or to do little because everybody else is. What happens, my heart does break when I think about how many more mouths could we feed if everybody did their part? How many more people could we help if everybody did their part? How much better would this society be if people would simply speak the truth? What happens to a culture when nobody is willing to stand up for Jesus and speak what is right? We're watching it happen right now, the, the, uh, the, the, the breakdown of our culture. It's, it's heartbreaking, and the reality is we have the answer, brothers and sisters. But everybody's too terrified, too terrified to speak up, too terrified to be called this thing or that thing. I said it years ago that um, where do we stop when we are unwilling to say that boys are boys and girls are girls. I said that years ago. And I said a statement. I even had somebody write me a letter there or uh, email me. They're upset with what I said. They felt like I was being mean-spirited. I said this statement. I said, so what happens if a child wants to be a horse? Like, where do we stop? If they can choose to be whatever gender they want, why can't they choose to be a horse? And you can get mad about that, say morally you're trying to poke. I want a legal answer. I've already said morally I think it's wrong for a girl to be a girl, a boy to be a boy. I want a legal answer. Where does it stop? If they can choose whatever gender they want to be, why can't they choose to be a horse? And people kind of laughed at that, like, oh, that's never going to happen. You realize that today we have in our schools, it's a, it's a thing with students 13 and older. They're called furries now. They're kids who think they're animals. This is not a joke. It's a real thing. Real thing. Multiple kids here in Derby. Derby Middle Schools, Derby High School. Some of them actually pin little tails on their behinds. Some of them just growl like dogs and meow like cats. I know a student that scored a goal on one of these kids that was playing um, goalkeeper 
in gym class for soccer, and after the goal was scored, the goalkeeper snarled like a cat. This doesn't seem real. How does this happen? I know a high school student that went into a restroom last week and came in contact with one of these so-called furries, snarling at herself in the mirror. Yeah, that's what happens when everybody's too much of a coward to say the right thing. Somehow we're doing the loving thing. You know, I, and this is not a slam to those students. This isn't, you want to know what makes my blood boil? Where are the adults? Are we filled with coward teachers who are terrified to say anything that would rather let students go down this destructive path that needs some form of loving guidance? It's horrible. It's not loving. You could call me hateful all day long. I'm not being hateful. I'm being honest. You don't need the gospel to tell you this is wrong. Nature itself declares it. It's insanity. You don't see cats pretending to be elephants. But somehow the most intelligent creation on the planet. We've come to a place where we've got children. Teenagers. It's a hard word to even use children for. So confused about who they are that now they're able to pretend they're animals and nobody can say anything about it. And meanwhile, while the whole world, I mean 98% of it, here's what I say and says, oh, that's right. Please say that. Please say that. The whole world, and it falls on the church, brothers and sisters, on us above all else, we step back and hope someone else just pours in a cup of their best. Surely somebody will eventually say something. I don't have to, right? You will find that a self-centered faith will give you permission every time to keep your mouth shut, to deny the Lord, to preserve yourself. And here's the reality. Whether you like it or not, that time will come. There's no free pass Christianity. There, never. Nope. This is not you get saved and you give your heart to God and you're never going to be forced to stand for him in an awkward position where you stand all alone. Nope. No, sir. No, ma'am. And as long as the main reason you come is selfish because of what you can get out of it, people want the blessing more than they want the blesser. What can I get? What miracles can I get? Could you be my, you know, my, my, my hero of a king that's going to destroy all my enemies? If that's your motive, if that's the reason, you're going to find that when all of a sudden you're going to be on the line, you do this. Your faith shakes. It crumbles. And then you give yourself excuses. Somebody else will do that. Nobody wants to hear it. Let me tell you something. Jesus wants to hear it. I don't care if the whole world doesn't want to hear that he's God. He wants to hear it declared. I don't care if the whole world doesn't want to hear sin is sin. He wants to hear it. He's declared it. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, 
We have to have a Christ-centered faith, not a self-centered faith. Number two, if you're gonna have an unshakable faith, you must have a faith built on a relationship with God, not people. Now, I wanna get to my relationship with God. That's what I wanna talk about. That's the point. But first, I wanna deal with not people. I understand it. I get it. God created us for community. I believe in community. I believe that it's important in a church that, that, that everybody's connected at least to a small group of families. You ought to have two or three at least that you're able to talk with, pray with. When you have a need, you're, you, you could text them or call them that, that you're involved with. I think it's important. We need one another. And there should be a degree of um, expectation that if I am part of a good, healthy body of believers, I should be able to have some good, healthy relationships. I want to acknowledge all of that. But I'm going to tell you something. If your faith is built upon that, it will be shakable. Because the bad news is people will be people. That's the bad news. If you look around, we're all people. When I look in the mirror, I see a person. And people, we make mistakes. We are pulled towards sin. We make selfish decisions. People let us down sometimes. And if your faith, your commitment to your relationship with God is somehow hinging upon people, eventually it's going to be shaken. It might not be five days. It might be five months or five years. But eventually, people will let you down. You get close enough to me long enough, I'll let you down. And I won't even know I did it. Most of the time, till you tell me. We're just people. And all too often, people come for the wrong reasons. They're looking for people group. They're looking for some connection to, uh, you know, friends or this or that. If that is your motive for being at church, your faith's going to do this. When people are doing what you want, you're going to be up here on the mountaintop. When people are not doing what you want, you're going to be down here. Think, well, I'm going to quit that church. Listen, there is a time and a place to quit a church, but it's generally because they're not preaching the Bible. Not because people there you can't get along with. If you are that weak, trust me, the devil will make sure everywhere you land, there will be a little thorn in your side. Everywhere. If that's all it takes. And you know what else? A lot of times the stuff that we have problems with people, we're wrong in our own mind. I talked about it um, Wednesday night at church, I called the elephant in the room. You know, sometimes things are going wrong and maybe someone's hurt your feelings at church or something and it's like, you, well, I can't go to that church now. I can't worship. The elephant's in the room. At what time does God become bigger than your elephant? I can't worship with that person. Really? Your God's so tiny, so small, so worthless. You can't worship him unless old brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so shakes your hand the right way? That's what happens when your faith is built upon relationships with people. And I'm not saying there's not a, you know, I, I believe in Christian accountability. I've, I've taught it. I believe in it. I believe in church discipline. 
But trust me, and so, sometimes there are reasons to have concern, but we've got to be able to worship past them. And half the time, we're wrong. Think, old brother so-and-so, you know, didn't shake your hand the right way, or sister so-and-so gave you a look or didn't give you a look. Like, you don't know what's going on with them. For all you know, brother so-and-so is struggling, he's had a bad week, and he don't want to lie to everybody every time he looks him in the face and say, I'm doing good, how are you? He doesn't feel like giving you the honest answer. Well, it's actually been a great struggle this week. I wish we weren't talking right now. I'm really having a hard time being here, but I'm here by the grace of God. Just could you please leave now? So you know what old brother so-and-so does? He does this, hands in the pocket this week. But you're so smart, you knew it was because he's got a problem with you and he's trying to send a subliminal message and teach you a lesson you're not wanted here. This stuff's real, and I'm telling you, half the time we don't know the truth about what's going on, and we've got to learn to stop it. But here's my point in all of this, right? Here's the point. I'm talking about unshakable faith this morning. You've got to have a faith that is built upon a relationship with God, not people. All right, so now let's talk about that relationship with God and why it becomes, it helps create and unlock, unlock unshakable faith. If your faith is just about motions and going through the thing and being at church and doing your thing and putting in your time, it will be one of the most unsatisfying things that you ever do. But if it is built upon a relationship with God, it'll change your life. And when we use that, that term for me, when I talk about a relationship with God, for me, it's as cliche as the term, the love of God. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God does love you. And I'm going to tell you something. If you'll ever take the time to get away and stop and meditate on that term, God loves me, and you let it sink in, it'll actually bring you to tears. But when it's just, yeah, God loves me, I know, I know, I know. You know what's happening? We've heard it so many times. It's just rolling off. It's rolling off. This is what happens with the statement, we have to have a relationship with God. And most of us assume a relationship with God, that just means I'm saved. That's another code word for relationship with God. No, it's not. I'm talking a relationship where you talk to him and he talks to you. And you come to this place of loving him and knowing him and Living in a place where there is a general awareness of his nearness. I believe with all of my heart there are times that we have to press through, be faithful to God based upon the word of God, whether we feel him or not. I believe it. But listen to me. Biblically, that ain't the way it's supposed to be all the time. Those are the rare times. That's how we are supposed to make it in the rare times. Biblically, there's this, this kind of general understanding that God is in me. He is with me. He is always with me. He's never going to leave me. He is here now. And I have a sense of his awareness. And he goes where I go. And he hears what I say. And he sees what I do. And he longs to communicate with me. When you learn to walk in that type of relationship, it will transform your life becomes unshakable when you know him and you know he knows you you won't want to stand with the crowd now, I'm going to say something about relationship it's probably going to be hard for some of you folks to hear might even make you mad when I say it if you don't spend at least I'm trying to be super generous to make as few people mad as possible if you don't spend at least 
10 to 15 minutes a day in quiet time, alone, in a place of prayer, seeking the face of God, then you don't have a relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't have a relationship with God. Now, before you get mad, because it's like, oh, you can't define a relationship. Yes, I can. I'm about to do it. <laughs> Let's say you're married in this place, and you don't spend 10 to 15 minutes a day ever, on average, with your spouse. Don't tell me you have a relationship with your spouse. It's broken. And you better fix it before it ends in divorce. That's a broken relationship. That's an empty, non-functioning relationship. So you're a parent. You got children. Great. What kind of parent doesn't spend even 15 minutes a day with his own children? Someone that doesn't have a relationship with them, that's who. This is hard truth to swallow. We all want to think we're close to God. We've got great relationship with God. We've got great faith. But when we start to look at the actual markers that show a real relationship, we find out we're falling very short. Now, I'm talking to you about an unshakable faith, which is a really important thing, brothers and sisters. Because the way I read the Bible, those who in the end aren't there, those who are crying with the crowd, crucify him. It doesn't matter what they look like on Palm Sunday. They're going to split hell wide open never to get out. This is an important, important topic about true salvation. How do you know that you're going to be one of those who endure until the end? You've got to have an unshakable faith. And that faith must be built upon a relationship with God, not a relationship with people. Number three, finally this morning, my longest point in the history of preaching. If you're a note taker and you grabbed one of the blue notes, you'll notice there are two lines to fill in because it's so long I couldn't get it on one line. That bugged me a lot. I thought of so many different ways to try to reword this. I like the points to be precise. And I thought, I can't. I cannot say this any other way, so this is how it's going to be. Number three, the third key. You must have a faith that does not roll over and die when the bottom drops out. You have to have a faith that does not roll over and die when the bottom drops out. You know, that's really what happened for these people that were praising him on Palm Sunday and then crying for his crucifixion on Friday. The bottom dropped out. I think most of us can relate to the terror of a mob. That's why many of us keep silent and hope somebody else finally says something someday. We don't want to be hated by the mob. We, won't, we don't want to be called a, you know, whatever. We don't want to be called hateful. You know, these people all of a sudden found themselves in the middle of a mob. They're angry. They're screaming for death. And they're scared. They didn't know this was the way it was going to go. And they weren't prepared for it. I'm going to tell you something about your faith. It will not. It will not 
lead down the road you think it will. There's no way to know what next week holds. You have no idea the battles that you'll face. You can try to think them up, but it, whatever you think it up, it's going to be something different. And for every one of us, at some point in time, the bottom drops out. And everything that you thought you knew, you find out it's not the way it was going to be. Things happen. Sometimes it's people. People do you wrong. Sometimes you find out the hard truth about somebody. Sometimes it's a terminal illness that comes to somebody in great health. Never in your wildest dreams thought such a thing could happen. Sometimes it's a sudden death of somebody way too young. It's a tragic reality, but the truth is, even in Christian homes, some marriages end in divorce. And life, at times, it takes us places we never anticipated it taking us, and it feels like the bottom has been pulled out. If you are going to have an unshakable faith, you will have to have a faith that in that time, you don't roll over and die. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is one of the hardest places to be is when it's dark and it's cold and the bottom has fallen out and you don't know what's going to happen. You've got to determine before that ever happens. You've got to know that day is coming and I've got to remind myself in that day that it's coming and I must stay faithful no matter what I face because sometimes the bottom falls out. The parade on Sunday was trendy. Everybody was doing it. Man, it's a cool thing to do. It was easy to serve Jesus then. But when the crowd turned, and it kind of looks like if you're going to be on his side, they might do the same thing to you. All of a sudden, the bottom fell out. You know, I have seen untold multitudes of people turn when the bottom falls out. In my heart, it really does. I, I hope I don't come across as uncompassionate this morning. My heart hurts for people when the bottom falls out. It's horrible. It's terrible when you get news you're going to die. It's horrible. It's terrible when your dream was some sports career and you end up in a car wreck that ends your hopes and your dreams. It's terrible terrible when after years of trying to make a marriage work, you both come to the conclusion it's over. It's terrible. It's terrible when awful things happen in the church and people do people wrong. It's terrible when you get the slip at work and find out you're not going to have a job in two weeks. You're done. It's hard. And so my heart does hurt there. But if you haven't purposed in your heart that no matter what happens, if the bottom falls out, I'm not turning on God. You'll find during those moments your faith is shaken. You know, God never promised. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to get in place this morning. God never promised that we wouldn't go through hard times. 
This is one of the, the tricks of the enemies to get us to think that somehow something's wrong because we're going through hard times. Man, the apostles went through hard times. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, but not till after they crucified his wife first. I could not think of anything harder than that. Can't think of anything harder. We want to turn on God because the bills aren't paid? Seriously? You're going to turn on God and run back to carousing at the bars because you can't get a wife or a husband yet and you're tired of being single? Really? You're going to turn on God because so-and-so did you wrong? You're going to turn on God because the bottom fell out? Brothers and sisters, I'm talking about unshakable faith this morning. I'm talking about the reality that the multitudes of people will sing and shout when it's fun and when it's right and when everything feels good. But in the end, we see there's not very many people that actually make it. I'm talking about a faith that isn't about what can I get out of it. But it's about, God, what can I give to you with what little life that I have? God, how can I further your kingdom? God, how can I lift up your name? God, how can I glorify you? This morning, are you really saved? I mean, have you truly repented of your sins and made the decision to turn from those sins and follow Jesus? If you're not, I beg you, I plead with you, I challenge you, I tell you that God commands you to repent and be saved this morning. To those who have done that or believe we've done that. What does our faith look like this morning? Is it really unshakable? Are we in this thing for Christ and what we can do for Him? Or are we in this for what He can do for us? Be honest with yourself this morning. Is your faith Christ-centered? Number two, what's your relationship with God look like? Does that need some work? Because I'm telling you, you want to have an unshakable faith in the hardest times of life, it will require a relationship with God. All the things and motions and church services and all that stuff combined in the darkest hours of your life, you're going to need God to be there, not all that other stuff. What's your relationship with Him look like? This morning, are you guilty of wavering in your faith when the bottom drops out?